Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yeah. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many yeah, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. All right, folks. Welcome back to the latest Mount Westwire football podcast. A.K.A. Fire Edition at the end of the episode, Matt. Straight fire. We're going to shoot, right? Yeah. <laughs> Check out our website. Recaps, previews, um, hoops, football, playoff stuff. Well, maybe not. I'm tired of writing about it, so we're just going to rant at the end about it. But, Matt, we have uh, Championship Weekend mm-hmm. to recap, which was a heck of a game. Yes, it was. You know the games I've been wanting for all year? This is another one to add to the books to say great game. Army Air Force. Oh, boy. Um, I guess we'll start there. We're not going to get into any pre any pre show stuff. We're going to get right to it. Army wins the Commander in Chief Trophy, ten to seven over Air Force. What the heck happened, Matt? How does our our Air Force score only seven points? And I don't know. What's your first thoughts this game? Because I'm just baffled about for what we talked about Army's rush defense and everything, and and Air Force couldn't do a dang thing really outside of the Brad Roberts half a what a dozen carries. I mean, really, it mostly comes down to Army's defense just made plays. Simple as that. I think is kind of. I mean, I I mean, I hesitate to boil it down to one sentence, but you know, it it it's telling that the game was really bookended by essentially three Hazik Daniels interceptions. You know, on the very first drive, you know, it looked like you know they it picked up or looked like they were they were going for uh, you know a big passing play through the air. And so I don't necessarily fault him for taking a shot down the field and maybe wasn't the, the, the best overall decision that he could have possibly made. Yeah. And and I think, if, that, if I'm not mistaken, that one was also tipped out of a receiver's hands. I can't recall exactly. I know at least one of them was. But then after that, they had a really hard time just getting things going. And, you know, if you look at the drive chart, that basically tells you everything you need to know, where even though they were able to move the ball into army territory at least a couple times, you know, it was five plays, 25 yards. And then, you know, seven plays, 35 yards, six plays, 38 yards. So Two it was like, it was really, it was really tough sledding and let's, okay. So, and I'll talk more about that in a moment. Okay. I'll let you continue because there's, that's one of the other overarching things that really, you know, told the story of the game. 
But beyond that, you know, they had the one touchdown drive. And I think that that was really where Daniels ultimately came alive. And so, like, if you look at his, his progression on a pass by pass basis, you know, he, he ended and began the game about as badly as you could. But in between, there was a stretch where he was six of nine for, you know, all of his passing yards. I think he was like, what, 104 in that game? He had four on that drive, I believe. Or no, yeah, uh, and, 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 and that included five. a really nice throw, the touchdown throw mm-hmm. to Kyle Patterson, the tight end. Yeah. And so, and then of course, after that, it looked like they were about to move the ball again in the second interception, I think was another deep shot, you know, and I think it, again, there was good coverage. I think if they had a little bit different ball placement, you could be talking about a much different, you know, play unfolding on that, mm-hmm. but they didn't get the traction in the running game. I think that they're accustomed to like Brad Roberts had a couple of nice runs, but you know, I think it's it tells a, another part of the story that he only had 11 carries despite having what I think it was like 80, yeah, 87 yards. If 80, I'm not mistaken. 83 yards, that big 30, the big 30 yarder, but it's like possession too. Like army ran the ball 71 times. Like they had more plays, more possessions. They, they converted on third downs because the air force wasn't bad on third down. They're four of eight, but army was 9017 and moved the ball. They went for it on fourth down three times, got two of them. There are, do you remember, do you remember that bowl game? A few years ago, between Army and San Diego State, where Army crushed San Diego State, that one. No, no, no. It wasn't no. that they crushed. I mean, that was a one-score game too. I'm thinking of a different game. Then, sorry. Go ahead. Nick. It was the bowl game where, like, San Diego State just like they got nickel and dimed the entire game. Okay. And you, I think Army ran it like 80 times in that game, and you know, it's that, and they were able to score points on offense. They just could not stop the running game, mm-hmm. and really. You know, what the one statistic that to me tells the entire story of this game is the fact that Air Force had exactly one tackle for loss. Yeah, you mentioned on Twitter. It's like, you got to do better than that. They, well, technically two, it looks like, but uh, I think they shared a tackle for loss. Yeah, but still, not, it's not enough. No, it's not nearly enough against a team like this. And it's, and it's not like Army broke out a lot of big gains. No. You know, they, they had, I think their, their quarterback, Tahir Tyler, actually got knocked out for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, it didn't really matter who was running the ball. They just had no answer for Army's running game. They and were good it enough. Was, it was a very bend but don't break kind of effort. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that it it took them until fourth down to actually score the game clinching touchdown late in the fourth quarter. Mm-hmm. You know, that that tells you something else. So it wasn't like Air Force wasn't making an effort. They just they needed a little bit more. Actually, I would say they needed a lot more than they got when it came to just being disruptive. And I think if you were looking for kind of a, a potential warning sign going into this game, it was the fact that Air Force was was relatively modest in that regard all season long. And maybe that was just a byproduct of the fact that they were missing so many of their best players from the defense from, from last year's top 25 team. But it was just one of those things where they just could not buy a stop and it, and it ended up snakebiting them when it mattered most. Okay, here's the thing I want to ask you about. So this game was very close. Like – Going to Army, like they're you're right. They, I think their longest play had a couple of 16 yarders or so. Looking here at the box score, there are no explosive plays. They're what one for two for zero yards passing, which is kind of weird and funny. But it was like, basically like death by a thousand cuts. Yes, yeah, they're getting eight yards here, four yards here. They only averaged, I believe, uh, off the page was it, 4.1 yards per play, which is fine. It's not amazing, but when you rush 70 times and you get close to 300 yards, that eventually right eventually adds up. So. Here's why it doesn't make sense. End of the game. They're up 7-3. to three. They could run the ball. Like, they're running the ball 
okay, they're coming off that 10-play drive where they had the touchdown. Um, before that, like you mentioned, seven plays. They only had four first-half possessions, really. So we knew they'd be limited. So they weren't they weren't moving the ball well, but then they get the touchdown. Okay. Um, they forced Air, or Army to punt after five plays. They made a, great, a good defensive stop where mm-hmm. they finally did. So that next play, they're driving on. This is the final interception I'm referring to. They start at their own 16. They move all the way down. They're getting first downs. They're moving the ball. This is arguably as good as the drive before. You feel they're in a groove because they're moving the ball. They're getting first downs. Why are they throwing on second and two? Is it just because Ezekiel Daniels was great to that Ben Peterson pass on third and 18? Why are they not running the ball like the one that was the touchback? Like the, the deep shot you're talking about? It's like maybe they yeah. saw something, but you're winning. Your offense hasn't been going great. You've had already had one interception prior to this. On this drive, you had two penalties on the false start. You actually um, ran the ball. Ezekiel Daniels had a big run, the 20-yarder. So they're running okay. We know what, Brian, what Roberts is doing at the play before. Why take a shot third down? Or even, heck, on fourth down, if you really want to get frisky, you don't get it. But second and two, run the ball. You're in Army territory. You're winning the game. You could milk another. Basically, a field goal would have won the game, almost, if they go up 10-3. Mm-hmm. to three. Like, I'm not the play caller. I'm not the coach. But I made, they saw something they mentioned. The downfield pass that went to the edge of the, the, the deep shot. It's like, your bread and bread is running the ball. You're winning seven to three. Points are limited. Why take a big time risk and look what happened? Like the shot, fine, you take it, but you get to hindsight, but my sight would be like, why are you chucking for an end zone when you don't throw the ball very well typically? That's not it your thing. Me, it makes me wonder whether Troy Calhoun and offensive coordinator Mike Thiessen may have overcorrected a little bit. Because you mentioned that you mentioned the two missed field goals earlier. Yeah. And to me, those were two really big pivot points in this game. Because when you yeah. look at the situation that the, that the Falcons were in in both in both times, you really can't say that they weren't in a position to to take a shot, you know. And especially the first one, where it was I believe in midway through the first quarter, you know they're you know they're moving the ball. They're yep. down. It's fourth and one at the Army fifteen yeah. mm-hmm. after the fumble recovery. Yeah, and you're betting that you can't get one yard. But also, that's early in the game. It's like. No, I mean, I, I mean, I, I get that, but I'm fine with either it's way. Within 15, you're basically what you're doing is you're telling your offense that you don't think you can get one yard against your arch rival, despite the three, the four plays prior got more than one yard, 16, exactly. four, three, and two, like that. And, and maybe, it, maybe it wouldn't necessarily have been like a, another Brad Roberts fullback dive. You know, I, I forget exactly who was on the field for that play, or, or, or rather, who might have been on the field, but. Yeah. I'm, it seemed like they were they were put they were getting enough of a push to be able to justify going for it, especially because if you can get an early lead, you can force Army to play the kind of game it may not necessarily want to. Yeah, catch up. They don't force want to them, yeah, force them to play catch up. And when you consider that they basically went down the field and you know chewed up a lot of clock immediately afterwards. Twenty play drive, folks. Twenty, 20 play drive, and they 10-02. went. And they went 10-02. Yeah, and they oh, got a man. field goal out of it. Yeah. And it was also baffling. Here's what I think, again, well, your point's correct. On that first one, I'm fine with him kicking. But I get your point. It's early in the game. You got the fumble. We want some momentum. Let's just get some points to be done. Maybe they felt like, oh, we got this. We, not course corrected, but the kind of swinging pendulum of the game. We threw the pick. We got the fumble back. We want to kind of crush them or, like I said, touchdown. Going with the field goal is fine. He's college kicker, whatever, but he should. they should still make that. The next drive is where I'd be more critical where they're almost in the exact same situation, fourth and two, 
and like after your guy already missed it, after you stopped army on downs, like things are going your way even though being down three to zero. Now, see, the only quibble that I would have with that is at that point you're you're nearing halftime. True. And and I think I guess maybe... five seconds left. Okay, there's that. See, so yeah, whatever. But yeah, never, never mind. I didn't check the time. I forgot when. I thought there was a little bit more time left in that. So, but I mean, I think that they had enough time. I, f- I thought they had enough time to at least take a shot at the end zone before settling for a field goal or something like that. It's just it comes down to just missing these these like they're not chip shots. But if you're a college kicker, you should probably be pretty consistent and almost. I don't know if it's automatic, but if it's 35 in, you should be making those all like 95% of the time. I don't think I'm yeah, wrong. Yeah, and I mean, I think that. by that measure, you know, by, by the fact that we've seen Tevye uh, shoot Pell's role, you know, I think, what, he had, what, four field goals in the opener against Navy? So, like, we know that he, he can be consistent, but, and so it, it, I guess by that measure, it was sort of a letdown to see him miss twice in, in, in definitely makeable kinds of situations. Yeah, which I think, like I said, maybe changed the calculus for their willingness to be a lot more aggressive later in the game, and it just didn't work out for them that way. So the, I guess the, my biggest takeaway, besides the missed field goals, is they didn't like the defense. You mentioned TFLs, like Army just did, like the I don't want to say the bare minimum because that's kind of disrespectful, but they, it's they're like the guy in school because like they get the. They they know what they, they they know what they have. They typically can't get good grades. They struggle here and there, and they kind of like, well, we'll do just enough on the final to get a C plus and not ruin my grade. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what Army did. They weren't exceptional defense is pretty good, but I'll say that they played quite well despite them only having one TFL on their own. But like they played well enough moving the ball. So here's why it does well. You do when you do well in first and second down, and you have three and less than four, they're going to convert or they'll just get a first down. Like, they made enough early down plays where they just kept getting first down, first down, and they broke through, like, the one time they needed to. They took advantage of Air Force's mistakes. But Air Force shouldn't have lost this game. They had two makeable field goals. They, like, this... Well, and here's the, here's the other thing. I think I've, I may have neglected to mention it a moment ago about the second fourth and two situation at the 20, mm-hmm. is that they still had two timeouts. But there's also five seconds, as I failed to recall earlier, so I don't know. But they could use them before, lead it into it, right? Yeah. What what are what are they uh, Andy Reid running the off the clock there? What's going on? That's a good question. Because I feel good. Look at the time. I don't know why there's a big time gap. Maybe ESPN's drive chart's kind of weird here. It may, keeps mentioning two fifty three every time until the final drive. Final that play. was when the drive started. I know, but every normally every play they updated. Mm. They did not, so I don't know how much time they actually had. That's a weird drive chart. But like, you're right. They had timeouts they could use because they ran the ball. I'm assuming the one yard run was inbounds. I'm assuming the, fi- the five-yard run, all the runs are probably inbounds, I'm assuming. I don't recall exactly, at least the one and two-yarders. It's, I don't know. This, this is just a game where Army showed up and Air Force. This is kind of like the New Mexico game a little bit, too. Like, how many, like all those turnovers they had, they could overcome that when you play a bad team. Despite Army playing, what, three FCS teams, and we talked how the schedule is not all that great or ideal. But you're playing an FBS team, it's a rival, and you, I know the last interception doesn't really do much because it was the end of the game, but two turnovers is a big deal in this game mm-hmm. and Caden Rebsberg he thought he'd play and there wasn't much of him out there or nothing at all he had what four carries nine yards that was it not right the way that Air Force wanted to end their year I'm sure uh, and we have egg in our face so we felt this would be an easy victory right <laughs> I thought it would be a more comfortable victory yeah yeah like I kind of figured by maybe two touch about maybe 10 to 14 points 
Anything else to add about this game? It's just the uh, kind of a crappy way to end their season because they thought they would uh, end up four and two and get the CIC award or CIC trophy, I should say. Yeah, I think we pretty much covered all the bases. I'm Alex Rodriguez, and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is the Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. All right, ready for the big game? Let's do it. Boise State. San Jose State. Spartans win! Spartans win! Th- this game, okay. This game was fun to watch. The first, yes, it was. the first half, like I start, I kind of write my preview during the game, like oh, the defense is stepping up, like until we see a Nick Stark go off with a, a monster second half, essentially, <laughs> like really getting touchdowns. But it was thirty four twenty, and this game was, it felt like in the first half, like at some point, and eventually it did happen, that Boise State can't keep this up on defense, because while they played well, they got to Stark a little bit. They forced, what, four first-half field goals? Mm-hmm. And so they, like, I'm like, there's no way. At some point, they're gonna, San Jose State's going to break through. And they did not. Like, the running game was atrocious for both teams, essentially. Kelly Robinson had a pretty big run there, like 24-yarder. But, like, overall, like, again, George Lani, I still say, like, if he plays, they have a much better chance to win. And yeah. he was unable to play. But, like, that's my thought in the first half. Like, Boise State defense is doing just enough, doing well stopping San Jose State, holding them out of the end zone. But then you have in that uh, fourth quarter, uh, we'll get the Avery Williams kick return, or punt return, I should say. But that fourth quarter, they're like, all right, let's do this. And they got the two touchdowns, the two-point conversion, and pulled away. But they were they were ahead just enough to to be like kind of a back-and-forth game to get to victory. So that's kind of what it seemed like to me. They got up, When they got up like uh, 27-13, it's like, oh, it's over, essentially. But they're up 19-6. to They're up 16-3. to Boise also, their couple field goals didn't help either instead of getting touchdowns in the first half. They missed the early field goal in the first one. Even the one that was blocked wasn't Avery Williams who got a hand on it, still went through for San Jose State. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I felt. Like San Jose State had just enough lead, and that's kind of why they won essentially. Then they end up getting touchdowns or trading touchdowns. I got the sense that San Jose State had a plan, and they were more than happy to stick with it. You know, in the sense that you know, we know that Boise likes to be balanced, you know, but you know, they don't necessarily want to be an overly pass heavy team if, if they don't have to be. And it seems like Starkle had no problems kind of putting the game on his shoulders and, and you know, by conch by extension, you know, Brent Brennan and, and Kevin McGiven, the offensive coordinator, doing the same thing to just say, We we think we can beat this secondary. Now go do it. And you know, by that measure, you know, even though he was only, what, 17 of 30 in the first half, yeah, you know, he, he threw 30 times. They ran, I think, nine times. Like, they didn't really pretend to try and establish the run or anything like that. Sure. And they didn't seem all that bothered by it because, you know, even though Starkle was only 17 of 30 in that first half, it could have been a lot worse for Boise. Yeah, because you know, there was there was a couple of drops, and and that was a theme I think throughout the game where there was, and, and some of them, most of them I would say didn't necessarily damage the Spartans' hopes too much. I think there was the what the third down drop to Derek Deese that led immediately to the uh, to the Avery Williams 
punt return touchdown, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. But it wasn't the kind of thing where it necessarily discouraged San Jose State from, from deviating from its plan, which was we're going to throw the ball all the field. We're going to dare Boise State to stop us. And Well, why would they? I, Their running game, as we've known, has not been good this year. So why does it surprise me? Well, they used the running game to close it out over the last couple drives. Like it you works. mentioned Kyrie Robinson mm-hmm. having a couple big runs late. That was pretty much what that boiled down to. But like in the for the first three and a half quarters, they were basically saying, okay, we believe in Trey Walker. We believe in Bailey Gaither. We believe in Deese. We believe in, in what we do best, which is what good teams do. They put their they put their strengths in a position to succeed, even against other teams' strengths. And you know that's how you get things like you know Nick Starkle taking you know identifying a cornerback blitz, hitting Trey yeah. Walker for that first touchdown. That was an amazing yeah. play. Like he offside still like he saw. And am I mistaken? Like they didn't mention the game like with Tim Brando calling the game, but who caught was that the Walker? Who caught that Walker or Gaither? I believe it was Walker. Was it a touchdown, right? Yeah, it was the 50-yard so, touchdown. Yeah, yeah. So did he wave his hand up as he's running in to notify him, the quarterback? It looked like he kind of put his hand up real quick to give me it quickly. I think so. Like, yeah. like hey, give it to me now. Like, maybe could have, and then maybe that was the same play they're calling regardless. But it was clear, like, when he saw the guy run in, he fl- quickly flashed his hand to get a quick pass. Mm-hmm. That's what it looked and, like. And I mean, and it's not to say that, like you said, Boise State's defense, I would – I would contend did everything it could to try and keep them in the game. You know, they had what two sacks, they had mm-hmm. ten tackles for loss. Yeah, ten. Um, they also had six pass breakups too, huge. which I think is perhaps the the biggest thing. And 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 so it wasn't like they were getting beat that often, but I was just in the end, San Jose State got more of those kind of in, they won more of those individual battles from play to play. Yeah. And that was really what made the difference for them in the long run. Yeah, Starkle, for me, like he had the mountainous record, championship record, broke Derek Carr's record from a while back. Mm-hmm. Um, can I gloat a little bit about what about some under-the-radar players that did well? Yeah. Derek Deese, touchdown, 7 for 76. Mm-hmm. Isaiah Hamilton, touchdown, 2 for 42. Just saying, I got something right for once. <laughs> but that's what they needed, though. Like, they, they did what we kind of what we mentioned, like, Deese overachieved like seven, like you mentioned, seven catches. But Walker had an amazing game. We knew Gaither, but he threw to what twelve different players here. They spread the ball around. Well, Boise's secondary is pretty good. Like Williams back there and others. Like he was able to find the open guy, and not that he took what Boise gave them because they kind of did almost what they wanted essentially. Like their passing game didn't really look all that different in this game compared to others. They just happened to find like okay, this guy's open here. We'll throw stuff across the middle. We'll throw stuff deep down the field. We'll do the quick the touchdown pass we just mentioned, like the wide receiver, not screen, but just the uh, quick whip, whip pass to him down the sideline. Like they were, there was nothing all that different outside of giving, getting more people involved. And it's not to say Boise is on the guys to uh, defend against that. They clearly do. It's that San Jose State has really good talent. And they, at some times, okay, you're not open here. I'm not afraid to give Kyrie Robinson running back five catches out of the backfield. Mm-hmm. Like we're not. Yeah, I mean, they they ended up with over three hundred yards just based on their chunk plays alone. Yeah, they had what six plays over twenty plus yards. Looks like mm-hmm. four, five, seven. I think two, three, four, five. Yeah, at least six, maybe seven. But like they were getting big plays. It was actually eleven. Oh, eleven. Okay, I'm looking. I didn't see that part. But again, even better. You're right. Eleven for that amount. And Bachmeyer got rattled a little bit. He got hit here and there. But with, uh, no, no, no. Let's 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 pause right there. <laughs> Because you're underselling that element of the game. Okay, go ahead. Go oversell it for me. San Jose State's defense, <laughs> their defensive front. Pretty good, right? They they beat the hell out of Boise State's <laughs> offensive line. 
And and that was not what I expected. I expected that there might be a little bit of a give and take. And that is not at all what we saw. Like Cade yeah. Hall, defensive yeah. player of the year, defensive MVP of this game. He beat up John Ojuku so badly in this game. Oh boy. Yeah, the two sacks, couple of TFLs, three. Yeah. And and he and it wasn't like even when they weren't, you know, getting to him all the time. Like they only had three sacks and seven TFLs, but they moved him off his spot a lot mm-hmm. in this game. Like, and, and he was able to scramble for a couple first downs here and there. He was able to kind of, you know, mobilize and, and move out of the pocket here and there. But, you know, he had the, the intentional grounding in the first half. That's just oh, because, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> because they were on him so quickly. Um, you know, and, and he was able to, he was able to make plays here and there. Like it wasn't like he had, you know, a terrible game. It was 20 of 41, 221 yards, no touchdowns, no picks. So like no Under 50% obvious breaking mistakes. But, you know, to me, one of the other things in the game was when they weren't, you know, when he wasn't under duress, one of the glaring, I would say, kind of weaknesses in this Boise State offense really came to light, which is that once Khalil Shakir left the game with injury, mm-hmm, they really happen. had nobody else to, to consistently threaten the Spartans with. Well, you mentioned, what did he have? The target share was like astrono- astronomically different between him and number two. Yeah, so if you missed it in the preview podcast, what I had noted was that he had more than two and a half times more targets than anybody else in the, t- in, the, in the game. And that wasn't necessarily the case in this one, although he did lead the team with 11 targets. Six catches, And he had 85. six catches, 85 yards. And But, you know, and it wasn't like they weren't able to, you know, they had the big play to Riley Smith, for instance, mm-hmm. you know, 40-yard play. But, you know, beyond that, you know, his other three catches went for 18 combined yards. You know, C.T. Thomas had, a, I think, at least one or two drops. You know, Andrew Van Buren is not anybody. I mean, he's not like a, a Ronnie Rivers type outlet out of the backfield. He had five catches on five targets, and so you know he he did fine. But you know the other young guys, like you know they threw to Billy Bowens for instance eight times, and he had two catches. Yikes! And it's, they they needed more from those secondary pieces, especially later in the game when they had a chance to close the gap. And they just could not find it. And I don't know if there's necessarily one thing you can pin it upon. I know that a lot of a lot of our Boise State followers on Twitter were really kind of the, the, their ire about offensive line coach Brad Bedell kind of fired up again. <laughs> and and for my part, as someone who saw what the Fresno State offense looked under Eric Kisa mm-hmm. back in 2016, which if you don't recall, was the worst year in program history. Is that the one win year or something Valley? like that? It was the one win year. I'm starting to wonder if. There you're seeing a little bit of cracks in the facade because I don't think you can necessarily pin it all on, you know, being without Halani. You can't pin it all on, you know, losing Shakir in the second half of the game. You have to take a real hard look at what this offense is going to look like in 2021. Well, and granted, the... they're going to have better health, mm-hmm. but it wasn't like they were. It wasn't like the cupboard was bare coming into this game. Like Hank Bachmeyer's, you know, still pretty good in his own right. Mm-hmm. Khalil Shakir's. You know, he's coming back next year. He's he might be the best returning receiver in the conference. And the offensive line was healthy all year long. When, it, yes. you know, when they when yeah. it was like they, they started the same five guys all year long, say for maybe like one or two starts here and there. Because it's not like last year where they had to start I don't remember the combination, but it was we saw in the Florida State game last year, Bachmer, true freshman getting rocked in that game. But throughout the year that was an issue because we thought it was more of an issue because of rotating guys around due to injury. Um, changing positions, mm-hmm. but, but you're right. It's not the case. It's more of a trend that even having your same five guys literally the entire year 
you have almost a, a similar result to a year last year where you probably started, I don't even know the number, was it over 10 offensive linemen they started last year? Overall, or at least, or at least not your not, not your typical position, like your right guard could have played left guard, or mm-hmm. your similar five-set guys, left guard, right guard, center, tackle, tackle and whatnot, being the same basically every game this year, where last year was all over the board. Yeah, the I mean, I'm not, say it's like a, I'm not going to say it's like a red light, but one thing I pointed out was turn. that, you know, despite the, the, the scoring offense, and I think I, this is something else I mentioned in the preview, was that it was something of a, it may have been something of a facade because... You know, over the last five games, they've averaged under five yards per play four times. And I went back and I looked on CFB stats over the last decade, and that has never happened before. Interesting. And like I said, I don't know that you can pin it on one thing or another, but it's something to keep in mind if you're looking about how Boise is going to refine what it does going into the offseason. So is that the biggest thing, like their offense? Like it's not one big thing, because here's the thing too. Halani has more talent than Van Buren, so he can offset with the offensive line not playing well. Mm-hmm. And that's a big deal, but there's a lot of things like it's, I know this includes sack yards, point one yard per play rushing the ball. Yeah. Your biggest rushing play was a Hank Bachemeyer. Was that the one where he uh, ran up the middle and slid like early on? I believe. Yeah. Yeah. So we had that in a short touchdown run, but like the running game is non-existent. They were terrible on third downs. They were I forget, what three of sixteen, three of fifteen. Spartans weren't much better, five and sixteen. One for three on fourth down. Like when it came crunch time, it's like. They couldn't get it done. Is this a was a Harson and guys out coached this game at all, or is it just better talent? Probably both. Both it seems like yeah. I mean, because one of the things that that stuck out to me, and I think they were able to close the gap kind of late in the game, was that San Jose State was a lot more dominant on first downs than Boise State was. Like there was a long stretch, I think, yeah. heading into like the late third, early fourth quarter, where. San Jose State, I think, was averaging like seven, eight yards on first down, and Boise State was averaging maybe a yard, a yard and a half at best, and that ended up, you know, kind of playing itself out in the in the third down efficiency, mm-hmm. where you know by the end of the game the, the the gap was a little narrower, where you know it was I think th- basically on average third and eight for for Boise mm-hmm. and third and seven for for San Jose, yeah, but you know that to me is the big difference in the game where you know it didn't always matter that you know Boise had effective third down defense because they were losing on the earlier downs yeah so let's get to the kick return the punt return was your um I saw on Twitter everything was your thoughts like oh crap Boise's gonna come back and get the win after that big touchdown return because that made it I mean you you tend to think of those kinds of big places being like a, a a spark or like a change in momentum even though you know, those those people who like are, are into advanced numbers like me know that momentum, as as we know it, is kind of a myth in football. Yeah. But, but it looks for a moment like they like they would, especially I think since San Jose State went what three and out on the very next drive. No, they scored a touchdown. Or did they, oh, they score a touchdown? No, they responded with a touchdown. Yeah, it was the one after because it went touchdown. Like I thought too, like Abram's big time touchdown, six point game right there, not seven. Boise or Boise doesn't stop them. The defense kind of fails them again, where it's a nine-play drive touchdown and a two-point conversion to go up eight, or excuse me, go up fourteen. When Boise responds, I'm like, okay, here we go. We got a game, and then we had punt, punt, and then like it felt like a game there because like my thought was, okay, how is Spartans going to respond? And they didn't do anything too differently. Like Kyrie Roberts had a couple, a three-yard gain, a nice pass to Derek Dees, a couple passes. He was pretty big on the drive with two of those. Um, yeah, two in the yeah. Sorry, Jessica had three. But like, okay, there's there's that there's that right there. But um, 
touchdown back and forth. Like, okay, Boise responds again. And then it comes to punt, punt. And then the final touchdown comes into play for San Jose State in the game over. Mm-hmm. Like, I thought there was a turning point. But when Spartans responded, I kind of honestly felt like, okay, they're at 14 here. I'm like, even the Boise State scores, because at that point when they scored that touchdown, there was two, what, um, was it the fourth quarter? Yeah, 14 in the, just over 14 in the fourth quarter. I kind of felt regardless of what happens, from what I've seen, I was very fairly confident. Like I was like 80% chance San Jose State was going to pull off the win. And even when Boise State scored next, I'm like, okay, we'll see. There was a chance because they, they, they defense stepped up, forced to punt, but the offense couldn't do anything. Like they were set up with another third and long because they decided to throw in first down and incomplete. They run on second, which doesn't give much of anything to Van Buren. They're sitting at third and eight, and I mentioned before they're three of fifteen, and they throw to Billy Bowens to try to get the first down. Mm-hmm. And essentially, game over after that. Spartans like, okay, we got you. Touchdown. Get the ball in the Boise territory as well at their forty-two yard line. Didn't have much to go. Got the touchdown for Derek Peace getting the score. So yeah, like this is a pretty good game, but like Spartans outplayed them for the most part, almost most aspects of the game. Defensive, both defenses played pretty well, even though the point total was uh, what it was at 54. Like, we mentioned how many TFL sacks, pass defense, like six pass breakups. That's amazing. Like, defenses played well, but it was in the second half when Spartans finally broke open the Boise defense because he's, normally you kick four field goals in the first half, it's a game, which it was. Like, had they got one touchdown, maybe another, this would have blown out, walked away with maybe 50 points. Mm-hmm. But, and you'll see that. That's a pretty good game. I enjoyed it thoroughly, and it was a. Great victory for Spartans to be 7-0. First regular undefeated season was since, I put in the recap, what, 1939? Uh, yeah, I believe that's correct. Long time ago, folks. Very long time ago. Been a while. Are there concerns, like, not to go too much next year real quick, but is there any big concerns of Boise State from this performance here that you saw? Like, this is a concern. Besides the offensive line, is there anything else that's really a concern, or is that kind of your biggest takeaway? Because they have receivers, Andrew Nathalani, Bachmeyer, like what was besides there anything else glaring you saw in this game? Was that kind of the biggest uh, miscues with the running game and offensive line kind of being the biggest struggle for the reason the results came out to be? I mean, I'm I'm kind of taking the stance overall with every team that it's a lot harder to make negative proclamations or negative kind of long term projections about each team just because this whole year has been very strange. Yeah, it's been an odd one. <laughs> But I think just on on its face right now, I feel like given better health luck and given you know the pieces that I think are likely to come back, that the defense is probably going to be as good as it has ever been. Next you know, year, once, or every, right once now? everybody once everybody is healthy, you know the defense is going to be every bit as good I think as we're accustomed to. Mm-hmm. But the offense is going to have to figure out how to develop some secondary pieces. Like where more because is it the depth Every, of running? Everywhere. Okay, I'm just wondering because the depth of running back used to be their strength, and Van Buren's never really stepped through to be that good number two. Like they've always had back in the day, Jeremy McNichols, a backup, steps up. They've always had the Halani. Now it's like he's just been hurt, unfortunately. They've always had the backup to step forward, and the number two has been pretty close to number one when they give him the chance to play. That mm-hmm. wasn't the case this year. You think they need more depth, like receiver as well? Yes. Okay. That's, that's what I think. They also have John Bates, but they made they made a huge deal about him not being there. I'm pretty sure it would have made a slow difference, but I don't think it would have been like a game-winning difference if he had been out there. Mm-hmm. So, do you th- also, let me ask it other other way here, Rob. Spartans, are they flashing the paint, or are they going to sort of keep this going? I mean, I hate to say it, but it kind of depends on whether Brent Brennan is around next year, is it not? It does, because uh, he has been linked to the Arizona job. 
Nick Starkle's mm-hmm. pro- I don't know. He's he could come back. Everybody can come back if they want to. So like That's true. With him, yeah, tr- the eligibility thing is going to be very very interesting to watch because Star- whether the who decides to return or who doesn't. Yeah, there's guys like I'm done football. I've been I'm already already rich. Senior, I can move on. Even if you're a starter or whatever, it's like it's not worth it. I have jobs lined up or whatnot. But Nick Starkle transferred a couple times. Finally, did really well. I could see him possibly returning because. I don't know how his NFL status would be right now, but there's a lot of quarterbacks. Like maybe like as many as four in the top ten, like maybe five or six in the first round. Mm-hmm. And so, like with him playing this well, like if Brendan comes back, I can see Starkle coming back to get another year of being a good college football quarterback. And so it all it does depend on that. But like if he, it depends on Brendan. It depends on if Nick Starkle wants to come back. Um, they have guys like Kyrie Robinson coming back. They'll have certain players. Trey Walker's he's not going to come back. He's going to NFL for sure. Because what's the point? Like, you have guys like also um, Tyler, eh, no, Tyler Nevins is a senior. Like, Kate Hall probably going to be gone. There's no reason for him to come back. We'll see. But here's what, my, what I hope to be. And it's hard to project right now with how eligibility is. I just don't want it to be, and our, our DMs and stuff, our guys talked about this. We don't want it to be a flash in the pan to go back to being a two-win team or something. Like New Mexico was a couple years ago with Bob Davey, where the upset Boise State, basically they were – tied for the uh, Mountain Division Championship but didn't go to the title game with two other teams. It's better when more teams are good, and that's what this league needs because, like, we know the Americans are touch better overall, but what they have, what Mount West does, is getting there. Like, we know at the top, it's typically Boise State, where they're almost always going to be a favorite to win the conference, win the division, and more often more often than not, going to the championship game. Not winning every time, but at least being there as one of the top two teams. Mm-hmm. There's been rotation of San Jose State. We've had Fresno State, San Diego State, Air Force, Owami to a degree, Utah State. We, they need more teams in the middle to be upward trajectory to play better. And being where you're at San Jose, I know historically it's not great, but there's plenty of talent down the street from everybody. They're better than Stanford this year. They're better than Cal. Like they're heck, they're the best team in California this year. I'm not going to hide it. They're better than USC. Come on, give me a break. Only undefeated team in California. I mean, San Jose State is, is proof that the right hire can make a world of difference. Yeah, because they and and, and, Brent Brennan, and, and and the guys he brought in, like we mentioned, Kevin McGiven when we were talking about the game, but also yeah. you know, defensive coordinator Derek Odom. Like those guys have, the, they recruited well. Mm-hmm. They you know they have an ethos. They have a system that clearly works on both sides of the ball, and you know that track record of development is something that's that paid off this year in Spades. And the job itself, like, let's look at the Arizona job. Let's kind of move forward a bit. Like, both these coaches are linked to the Arizona job. I don't know how pissed Brian Harson is, but he seems a bit upset about a lot of things these days. Could have been because he's bored, not coaching football, which I don't blame him. If that's your gig and you can't do it, it's just kind of uh, everything else you think about in the back of your head comes forward. But if you're either coach, can you, like, I don't think there's a good reason to take the Arizona job. If you're Brett Brennan, I could see more so because. They paid Kevin Semlin someone just over three million, and if they pay him like two point seven, Brennan or even Harson, like if you pay it to Brennan, that's a huge jump. I can see him taking it. Harson's already like one point eight, so it's like it's a bump in pay, but is it worth it to go to a program that just lost 70, 70 to seven to its rival Arizona State? And we look at the Pac twelve South, obviously USC. They always got the talent. They'll always be up there at the top. Colorado looks to be much better under with Carl Durrell, and they even have able to practice with his team this year being a new new head coach. Utah's not going anywhere with Kyle Whittingham. There'll be a top three team every year. You have um, UCLA. We'll see their potential. There's rumors of maybe Urban Meyer. I don't buy it. But like, 
you're basically the last team in a conference where three of the five, three of the six, or four of the six, well, excuse me, three of the six have solid head coaching jobs, head coach, head coaches. The fourth guy in Colorado will see, but seems to be fine. And if UCLA gets his act together, they could be up there with um, like top half easily, no question, every year contending. Arizona doesn't have that. They've been to the, what, one Rose Bowl ever, I think? None. Oh, no, it's none. Okay. They've never been to the Rose Bowl. Like, tell me the incentive for, like, Harson to take the job. Is there any? Besides wanting to get to a Power 5 league without taking his team with them? So I can't recall if I mentioned this on a podcast or in our DMs or on Twitter or whatever. Somewhere. <laughs> but it's important to keep in mind that six years ago, Boise and Arizona were in the same spot, on the same field. Mm-hmm. They were. Playing in a New Year's Day bowl game. And... You know, obviously the Wildcats haven't necessarily had the same level of consistency over the years, but that's not to say that people haven't won there before. Obviously, I think Dick Tomey is the is the with his Desert Swarm is kind of the big mm-hmm. uh, you know name in that regard. But you know, Rich Rodriguez, who you mentioned previously on, on past podcasts, you know, he won there. Yeah. You know, and so it's not like people can't win there. And it's it's interesting kind of seeing the perspective of, of writers who are more intimately familiar with the Arizona football program, like Michael Lev of the Tucson Star mm-hmm. and uh, Ryan Kellepire of uh, SB Nation's uh, De- Arizona Desert Swarm. Mm-hmm. Did a good job. It's interesting what they are looking for with regards to, you know, what they think the next head coach should do. So one thing that they both agree on, for instance, is like reemphasizing in-state coaching or in-state recruiting. Um, and That's I think awesome, that, yeah. you know, the fact that like San Diego state, for instance, may have gotten their quarterback of the future out of Arizona mm-hmm. uh, is, is one instance like New Mexico. I believe it was Steve Bergen of the Albuquerque journal mentioned that the Lobos have, you know, a few three-star recruits or, from in their, in their recruiting class and things like that. Um, you know, they mentioned maybe, you know, reestablishing the, you know, Polynesian pipeline, you know, um, or, you know, going into California, Southern California and encouraging people to come out to the desert. Um, you know, someone who knows how to build a positive culture, somebody who knows how to be a people person. And so you have to think that, you know, in some respects, thinking about Harson and Brennan in particular, that, you know, Either of those guys, I think, fit some of those bills a little bit better better than the other. But, you know, because Arizona is not an impossible job, when you look around the landscape, you know, you say Colorado's in the upswing, but we've seen that before, and how long is that going to last under Durrell? You know, USC mm-hmm. is not the USC that we saw at the turn of the century. Uh, but they know, still UCLA's, get players, though. UCLA is still trying to figure things out under Chip Kelly. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it, are they going to be starting from the bottom? Sure. But it's not an impossible job. It's not impossible to envision Arizona in a Rose Bowl in the next six years if they make the right hire. Like as a conference champion over like Oregon, Washington, Cal, it seems like an absolute with Justin Wilcox. They weren't that far. They haven't been that far away a couple times. I think, you know, 1988 is the best example of that where they finished number four in the country. like Like I said, the right hire can do a lot of good work there. And the way that the Pac-12 South, like depending on what kind of view you want to take on it, it's not impossible to win and make yourself competitive. Colorado did it this year. You know what I mean? Like it's different. Exactly. But, and like you're right. It's like it's not possible. I just kind of mentioned the hierarchy the past couple of years of what's been going on there. Like Utah went to two straights. The USC coach, whatever, they're fine. They'll get the talent regardless. It's You're right. It's not possible. They'll be starting at the bottom. But who wants – like here's the thing about these jobs and everything. If you're a coach like Brian Harson, 
or a top level group of five guy, Chris Peterson went to Washington. Like that was a good move because Washington's been pretty good. If you're top of these guys in, you you can be picky in the job you want. He makes. Like, a, let's put it this way: like Arizona is a much more tolerable job than like South Carolina. Oh, for yeah. instance, I don't know why anybody would want to go to South Carolina when you got to face Georgia and Florida every year. The Clemson too, South right? Don't they play Clemson every year too? Usually, yes. <laughs> And you know the Pac-12 South is not that level of football. No. And so and so like Harson, who is a guy who has has maintained a winner, knows how to recruit. He's at the top of the conference every single year in that regard. You know, someone like him, if they choose to back up the Briggs truck for him, if they can afford to do that, can absolutely make a difference there. No, he could. But what I'm saying is like he could be. If you're at a here's a here's a job you're looking at. If you're a top level coach. Like, I mentioned P- Peterson again. He got to go to Washington because he got to go there. Because there, he turned down UCLA, USC. He had choices to go where. I believe the mm-hmm. Tennessee job, I think, was, like, up there. I think Kyle Woodingham, when, when Utes were in the Mountain West, Tennessee's like, no thanks, but no thanks. So, if you're going to be a good group of five coach, like, really good, like Carson, maybe Arizona, if they want to pay $4.5 million a year, which I don't think they would. I think they'd maybe top out at three, maybe. At the, and that, but that's not much more money he's getting now. And you're already in a team that's doing quite well. But there's gripes inside with that, whatever. But if you're going to take this job, it's going to be almost any job's a rebuild job, essentially. If you're a good group of five team to take over, like, look at uh, Brady Hoke, San Diego, or San Diego State to Michigan. These teams that coaches get the call up to go somewhere big or bigger, it's usually taking over situations not good. It's not going from, like, Carson to Boise State before from Arkansas State. So the odds of that happening, if you get a job that's decent, that's pretty good, which Arizona could be, but this year and last year hasn't proven that. So, like, if they were, like, say Arizona State were to hire him, that'd be a much more palatable job for what they've been doing. And for some reason, like when Todd Graham left, when they were doing fine. Like, Todd Graham was doing a pretty good job, and they brought in Herm Edwards. How you taking over job, that job? Good. But if he takes over, like, even Michigan, like, they're a mess right now. It's like, most of these jobs you're getting, if they're a big-time job, it's because they're not doing well. It's not because the guy gets a better gig, maybe goes to the NFL or retires, but you're not getting that top-end job. You're going to have to grind and rebuild. And I'm going to say this now, and I've said it before, look at University of Texas. And this may, people may shoot me down and yell at me and say I'm crazy. Brian Harson was the OC there for one season. Texas, people, Urban Meyer does not, wants nothing to do with Texas because of how the boosters and stuff are going on down there. I'm telling you, if uh, Herman does crappy next year and they don't do expectations, I could see them bringing Brian Harson taking that job in a heartbeat. Partly because of this Texas but they're more of a job, like even if they're not great, they're still fine, but they can get anybody they want essentially there. You can get a competent coach who can actually get his way. Like I could see that being a, a spot to get because Texas will try to get Saban like they tried before. They'll try to get these big-time get guys, and they all say no because Texas is a freaking mess. Mm-hmm. So I could see, and like this is not me just saying that, but if Harson has a, even a, a similar year this year or next year and they don't want Herman, they're gonna, I, I don't see why they should not get Brian Harson because he would take that job over any other job. In the country, like you're, unless you're going to somehow get, you're not getting Dabo to come in from. You know what I mean? You're not getting Brian Kelly. You're not getting Urban. You got to get the, another guy who sees it as an actual upgrade. And I could honestly see that being the case next year. Mm-hmm. I don't think Harson should not take the Arizona job if it's up. I think that's nothing but trouble. I mean, I think it's fair, but I wouldn't blame him if he did. No, but I just think with the money he gets right now and the annual raises he gets, like, what's the point? Like, is an extra million bucks worth it? An extra $800,000 worth it? Maybe. I don't know. 
I mean, speaking as someone who doesn't have a million dollars. I know, I'm just saying, I know. <laughs> I mean, okay. I, would, I wouldn't Matt, mind an extra million dollars. What if somebody gave you an extra, like, ten grand years? Is that worth it to go to some weird job that you have to do a lot of work to get it organ- organized? Yes. Okay, I'm just saying, okay, there you go. <laughs> I'm not disagreeing, but I'm saying, when you're on that high level of skill, and you're I'm, already... I'm a mercenary, man, let's I put it that way. I hear you, but I'm saying, like, when you already make good money... No, I get what you're, I get what you're saying. It's a... Yeah. But, all right, let's... uh. It's time to – let's do some bull stuff super quick because we're going to have our preview up shortly about the upcoming games. So Boise State opted to not go to a bowl game, which I don't blame them in one, one, one second. Do you blame them at all for wanting just to pack it in and be done? No. Not pack it in, but just to say we're, fin- we're, fin- we're finished, guys. We're relaxed. We're done. There's nothing literally to play for because had they won, they would they probably would have felt bad and say, yes, we're going to bowl game or New Year's Six. But – Army is not going to bowl game because stupid South Carolina gets to go to one because the Independence Bowl got canceled. It's like mm-hmm. that. I feel really crappy for them. That sucks. But like Boise is not going, which is fine. You have was it um, San Jose State versus uh, Ball State in the Arizona Bowl. Mm-hmm. We have Nevada, Tulane in the Potato Bowl, Houston, Hawaii, and the New Mexico Bowl in Frisco, Texas. Right. Yes. So we have those bowl games. That's fine. They should be some decent games. But we need to rant or talk about what you've done before, and you're like, I have no qualms about this. So. College football playoff sucks. It's yes. a system that the human element ruins everything. I'll say for even what we're doing here, we suck. The human element is bad, and when it's implied for an invitational only, the playoff it's like it's ridiculous. It's Al- like the teams are fine, like whatever Alabama, Notre Dame, Clemson, and Ohio State. It's just the double talk and not talking, going straight forward, and openly, admittingly saying. Well, if you're a good team from Coastal or Cincinnati, that you need multiple years to get there. If you're Matt, you're telling me. I'll t- I bet you'll answer this in half a second. If Vanderbilt were to go 13 and win and win the SEC, would they be a number one seed in the playoff? Yeah. Okay. The Cincinnati or, or UCF or Boise or San Jose State or San Diego State can they go 13 and 0 and make the playoff after not being good one year? No. They'd have to do it for like five years in a row. And then maybe they'll give them a chance, but that's not how college football works. You can't. It's not like the pros where you keep guys for three to five years, and that's what her Kurt Herbstreit said during the playoff show, which I did not watch, but just watched on Twitter. I but got some thoughts about Kirk Herbstreit. Is he a double, double speak guy, double talk, back talking guy, where he was crying and upset about giving chances to these teams with BYU and a playoff team because he was trying to hype BYU all year long, and then it went away. So what's your thoughts on him? So, okay. So I put this, I put some of my thoughts on the MWC wire Twitter account. So you can always go find them there if you want um, to, to be more precise. Mm-hmm. But you know, that like the thing about you need a couple of years as a group of five team. It's a joke. What that tells me is that, you know, you're operating under one set of standards for the power five and another set of standards for the group of five, which is to say that, you know, if it is not simply about the season that you were in, then you were doomed from the start. And and this is not simply a, a college football playoff problem. This is like a, a, a media problem. This is an AP top 25 poll problem. This is a coaches poll problem. It's also where, a not using advanced numbers when they're beneficial to you problem as well, where they go like... We bring, we bring it up uh, every single year that group of five teams are continually underrated in the preseason relative to the postseason. How many teams are in the AP top 25 right now from the group of five? Uh, I have to look at all in front of me. Uh, I'm guessing It's probably four? like five or six. I'll look right now while you do that so we can have a good conversation here. And so essentially what you're saying, what he's, what he is saying is like that enables the committee to move the goalposts 
anytime they need to to say, oh, well, you know, the Mac was relatively average this year. The Mountain West was relatively average. Like let's let's like San Jose State ran the table, right? They beat a one loss team in the in the conference championship game. They beat another team that was undefeated in conference play in the championship game. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were still ranked behind four teams that had three losses. Florida. Number 10, Texas, Florida. Mm-hmm. North Carolina. And Oklahoma State. Wait, Oklahoma State? No, no, they're not. Are the playoff one or the AP? In, in the playoff rankings. Are you freaking kidding me? Oklahoma State is still ranked? They're number 21. Uh, they're right ahead of San Jose State. All right. Two, quite, two thoughts for you real quick. There's six, including BYU, non-Power 5 teams ranked. Mm-hmm. Also, for Herb Street's words, I didn't watch it. Is he projecting what he thinks the committee is saying, or is that was that his actual thoughts? Because I didn't. Those watch were his actual. You need a couple, of, and I took this from from at uh, reflectivity, yeah, I, yeah, so yeah. it may have been paraphrased a I little saw bit. It, yeah. But but essentially, like what it does is it gives it it gives the committee an out to just never say that the Big Ten or like I guess maybe more to the point this year the Big Twelve had a down year. Definitely. Coastal Carolina beat them. Louisiana beat them twice. They lost three separate games to Sunbelt teams. Two good Sunbelt teams as well. Don't mince that. So what what that does is it basically allows you to put blinders on and ignore the fact that the Big 12 is having a down year. The Sunbelt's having a really good year. Best year probably ever. Yeah, like Coastal's undefeated. Louisiana was one loss. And they they only lost to Coastal by three. Mm -hmm. Let's put it that way. Um, you know, App State's a well above average team. You know, they got a couple other teams that are six or seven wins. Yeah. Um, UAB is another conference you're saying. Never mind. You know, and, yeah. And it's, and, and the American, which I think is the best example of this, like you mentioned that the fact that they're, they're a touch longer and the fact that, you know, he says that it takes more than one year. Well, you know what the AC, the AAC has done in the last four years? It's just on they've the same an, team. They've had an undefeated team at the end of the college football playoff rankings three times in the last four years. But Matt, it's not the same team. It doesn't count. <laughs> yeah, I think that, like, I don't know, like, I'm asking again, I don't know, was that his, like, was that, I saw the tweet too, was that, I'm, what I'm wondering, I'll bring it up again, was that his thoughts about the system? Like, is that, here's what I'm getting at, because he said those words. I didn't watch it here, so maybe we're misinterpreting, but what, I'm wondering, is that what he thinks the playoff committee is thinking to, or she actually believe? Because the system we have, because there's two different things. He can say he's basically saying that team group of five teams need to put in like at least two years worth of I, work before they can be taken seriously. Is it because the system or Jackson which really kind think of defeats that? the whole purpose? Because they're not playing the same sport essentially. What would come down to it ignores the fact that the AC has had a couple of pretty good years in a row. Yeah, it's just a different team at the top essentially, but it's really the same. Cincy, UCF, and Tulsa's been been hanging around too, and Navy for one year, which Navy's always pretty good. Like, and I know that, and I know that a lot of the conversation focuses around like Cincinnati in particular. You know, there were a lot of people advocating for them to be that number four team rather than Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, it's stupid that Notre Dame is the fourth best team in the country. But it does have larger ramifications if group of five teams are going to be continually undersold because what that does is affect the dynamic of the new, of the of the group of five race for for that New Year's Day Six Bowl. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you compare that to the you know, like the old BCS rankings, for instance, just taking San Jose State into account, they would have jumped by three spots. Yeah, you know, they would have yeah. gone from 22 to 19 if we were using the old BCS system. They would have leapfrogged Oklahoma State. They would have, you know, leapfrogged Texas. And you know what it would have had? You know what it would have been a whole lot more fun to watch during Championship Weekend. If you know, assuming everything happened, you know, as intended, 
you know, you've got Cincinnati, Tulsa, you've got Coastal Carolina, and I did get uh, played, but Troy would and, and Louisiana. Probably, you've got yeah. you know oh, San Jose yeah. State. So basically, you could have had a situation where five teams were a lot closer to that last spot, and it would have been a lot more entertaining to watch overall. So yeah, even though most of the focus is around the top four, and the fact that I think somebody pointed out that like six teams have accounted for 20 of the 28 spots since we started this thing six years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that you're continually underselling group of five teams really does a disservice to that other dynamic, which is more important to us, which is just having the bragging rights. And that start and it starts before the season even begins. Apparently. Yeah. It's, it's a joke. It's like, <sighs> um, like what, with the system we have, is there any, is there's nothing to be done with the current system because there's representation. I think there's what three. I know the Wyoming eighties on there, but I think there's three non-power five guys making this decision. Like you're telling me, when you have Gary Barr, the Iowa AD, says this is a committee, then he goes to the Big Ten, let's change the rules to allow Ohio State to play. Like they, it's yeah. One thing okay, that can that's be stupid too. One thing <laughs> can be done, like have people who have. Well, it's hard to have no bias, but how about we have no people that are employed by university making these decisions? How about you pay me $50,000 yeah. a year to make these decisions yeah. for you? But, but making my point, like we need people who are not employed by university. Yes, if you coach there, played there, whatever, there's going to be some sort of bias. But what I'm getting at, like you need to have people that don't have a vested interest in getting your number one team in the playoff, like Ohio State. Like there needs to be some sort of uh, not there's gonna never be accountability, but like there needs to be something where remove bias because this system's not changing for six years. But the way to change it, and I said it last week, I'll say it again, is that the first off, it's invitational, it's not a playoff, so get that out of there. Mm-hmm. The like people put our DMs and Twitter, like t- tweet Twitter, but tweet at us like the NCAA. Is there a way they could take over this and actually make it a playoff? Because what I said, I don't care. You, I like, you have your options. I have mine. Others have others. Like, oh, four is fine. Eight's whatever. You want to know what's exciting, Matt? The final weekend of, this, of the season, championship weekend, conference t- titles are on the line. And let's just say we do my option. Ten teams get in. Six at large. Okay. Yeah, there's a Florida, Georgia, Florida, Alabama. Okay, Florida's probably getting in. That's fine. But you know what the winner gets? The number one seed, the home field advantage, playing a probably Ball State who, while good, probably going to be a, a rollover for Florida or Alabama. You get them at home, you mm. get an easy victory. A fair, well, I don't want to downplay that, but you know what I mean? Like you have a, you're better, you'd rather be number one than number four, because number four you could play, be playing a Mountain West champ that's plucky and can beat somebody. Better be in number five than number eight where you're, or being on the road and having to play um, Texas A&M or something. You know what I mean? Mm. Like <laughs> Georgia going to Texas A&M or whatever that may be. Like how excited would that be? Like if you win your conference champion, like you might have, you probably have a home game in a nearby, if you're one of the like ACC or SEC, I mean, like Clemson or SEC, that's very exciting because if you if it's a conference title that gets you in, that makes championship weekend a whole lot more fun for mm-hmm. for ninety percent of the time. Like Clemson Notre Dame, like I even though I didn't like the outcome, I kind of figured it would have been both teams in almost almost regardless. Maybe not Clemson with two losses, but getting winning the conference champion should mean something to get you in there, and that will make scheduling better throughout the year. We'll see more non-conference games that are better. We may see more group of five, power five games. We may see more Oregon, Ohio State, Texas, USC. We may see more like Georgia, Clemson. You know what I mean? Teams like that, like better teams. Like even like, heck, just say over this year, like Indiana and Colorado would have been a pretty good game this year for how things turned out for each of those teams. 
Like, but they need to eliminate this stuff and have guarantees for or to make a conference. Like, I, doing a conference, you're fine. That means you're really good. But also gives you more room for error if you screw up in a non-conference game. It doesn't matter. You can still work your way back in. And I mentioned this on Twitter. I'll say this here. You know what the, like, also, also real quick. Do you, you, I assume you listen to the Solid Verbal a little bit, right? Do you t- uh, not for a while, no. Okay, so I listen to that pretty regularly. So the guy, Dan Rubicin, there's like, he's, whatever, the platform's like, I don't care. He doesn't, not that he doesn't care, but he doesn't want the whole focus to be on this. Because college football, honestly, is a regional sport that's gone national. Mm-hmm. For the past decade, when ESPN got more involved and stuff, and so I don't want the focus to be all around just the playoffs because right now it's like if you're not in the, even if you're not if you, even if you're in New Year's Six, like honestly, do you care about North Carolina, Texas A and M? No, do you care? No, like no, I don't. Give no, a crap. I don't care about any of them. Like Oregon, yeah, Oregon is what's the pack, fifth of Oregon? I don't know who they're playing. Iowa State? You kidding me? It's like who cares? And so his point being, he wants it to be more about your team doing things, your conference. And if you happen to get to that point, that's just extra and gravy. It's awesome. It's more fun. But mm. you can have both if you make a conference championship worthwhile and get you in to play for something. Because it's basically, the playoff is, it's like College of Bulls having half of March Madness right now. Mm. What's the best part of March Madness? I don't care if Duke, Arizona, North Carolina gets in, Florida wins the national title. Honestly, I don't even really watch the College of Basketball title. I'll watch the first weekend because people have brackets. You see crazy upsets. You see... Ty Sedney going down the field to lay up at Taco Bell Arena. You see Bryce Drew. You'll see Weber State winning two games. You know what I mean? You'll see Utah State doing something. You'll see, what is it, um, Iowa State losing. That's the two seed. Bucknell beat Kansas. Those are great. They can have both, right? You have the first round games. Maybe they're blowouts, but still. the Okay, the top three seeds, more blowouts than not. But like if you had the middle pack playing, those are great games. You have them at home. Great atmosphere, great environment. But the playoffs like a a... It's like Law and Order, essentially, or NCIS. You know where the path is going. It's comfortable and and palatable enough to keep watching and getting people to tune in every year and every week. That's what I, I mean, think the playoff is. I mean, a lot of people have been throwing out, well, we should just start a group of five playoffs. No. But I don't, I don't think that's the answer. I think, what, I think a better alternative would be to set up some kind of system where a team like Coastal Carolina, if they get hosed, they don't have to get stuck playing Liberty in a, in a second-tier bowl game that nobody cares about. Liberty's decent, but still, it's... What yeah. I would like to see is I would like to see a system where group of five champions can just base off with each other in a one-off and, right. and re, kind of raise the profile of those conferences altogether. So, like... Arizona you know, Bowl if, if, if the yeah, something like the Arizona Bowl. Like, you know, maybe one year the, the Mountain West, and, and it would depend maybe entirely on whichever conference gets to the New Year's Bowl game. So, like, for instance, you know, if we could get Coastal Carolina versus um, who's the other group of five conference that I'm blanking on right yeah, now? Yeah, Sunbelt, American Mountain West. Um, the Wax on Sunbelt team, are they? No. Mac, Mac Sunbelt, Mountain West, AAC. Are we really so like so like Cincinnati's <laughs> yeah. going to the so we're so like UAB for instance. Oh, conference you say yeah. They're playing two and eight South Carolina. It's a kick in the face. Why isn't Coastal playing UAB? I would watch that game. Or why isn't Army playing UAB? Yeah, and I mean you could get teams like BYU, like Army, into this mix if yeah if BYU they have, UCF that's decent. You know, and you could you know, change up that dynamic depending on whichever conference gets that team to the new year's day bowl game then great you know you can stage the la bowl with the mountain west mm-hmm. champion and like the mac champion i want more flexibility in the bowl st- game. you can stage the new orleans bowl with the sunbelt champion and the conference usa champion 
and it it allows for more high profile games among the best teams in each conference without necessarily that really, locking themselves okay. into a system where you know it's like a winner take all kind of thing and then like what what comes of it after that let me ask you this would that really raise the profile do you think would that do anything and move the needle i mean let's put it this way like the la bowl was supposed to be a mid tier pac 12 team this year would you have rather seen you know, San Jose State play against, I don't Utah, know, UCLA? Probably Utah. I don't know, Washington State or something. I don't know. Yeah. Like, would you rather watch, like, two really good teams play, or would you rather watch a, a conference champion play against a middling team from a Power 5 conference? I'll tell you this. For covering BYU this year, and I've done for years on my radio show I work on, people want would rather play a bad P5 team than even the best group of five teams. I don't get the mindset. Like, they're playing UCF, that's a pretty big name, but if they were to play Tulsa, they probably wouldn't be happy if no other ranked team. They were happy to play Coastal because they're undefeated, but they thought they'd win. But, like, they, in a bowl game, they want to play Power 5 teams. They don't care. It's like, we could play a really good team that's in a group of five, like Louisiana. Probably be, they, they would rather take, like, not necessarily South Carolina, but they would rather take a 7-5 Power 5 team than playing a really good G5 team. I'm just telling you. That's what a lot of the fans would. They would rather say we beat the P5 team, even if it's crappy South Carolina or Duke or some bad team in that mindset. That's dumb. But that's well, then the conferences need to take a page from Mike Oresco and do something about that perception. No, I'm just, yeah, but I think that's most fan, base, fan bases from a group of five. They'd rather play P5, even if it's a bad one. That's what I've, that's what I've gathered. And not that that's a good idea. Like playing Ball State, fans are like, oh, who's Ball State? Like, well, they just beat a really good Buffalo team that was ranked. And have and shut down one of the best running backs in the country. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know what to do. Um, I do, but it won't happen for a while. But it's just, uh, d- folks, don't care about the near six game. Don't care about the playoff. Have hope for your team that does well. And if you're in the mix, then get upset over it. There's zero percent chance of playoff happening with a group of five team to get in. Like, we've heard with the comments. Well, we watched I we watched Alabama, Florida, and Cincinnati, Tulsa side by side eye test. It's more than the eye test. There's some stuff your eyes can't see with college football. There's certain <laughs> things you don't remember. It's like what I mentioned to you last week. Like, Awful Analysis has a pretty good piece on the Red Zone channel where this, one of the writers says, I'd rather watch a full game, understand the game, than watch highlights and quick clips or watch Red Zone of big plays because you don't know football. You're telling me you can concentrate football watching side-by-side side enough to know? You can't. And we've gone, along, we've gone along a lot longer on this, but like, the, here's you're right. The conference needs to do something to make or to raise the profile. I would honestly like people for like a flex weekend late in the year where you have one non-conference game and you pin up some good teams, kind of like the bracket buster did for NC for mm-hmm. college hoops, but not as expansive. But maybe have it be even include every team, not just a group of five. But like okay, if you're ranked here, and this is why conference cha- if there's a conference champion only to get in, like a requirement, this would be good as well. But if not, this would still be a fun game where it's like. Not necessarily rival weekend, but you, whatever the weekend may be, sometime in mid-November, you have a handful of teams, like, I don't know, 20 teams. You play 10 games where, or maybe it's everybody. Everybody gets a game to play against somebody else that one week at the whole college football. That could be too. It's huge. But you'd get a chance to play a team within your range. Like, maybe it's a draw or something. Like, that'd be a huge made for TV events. If you're, like, one through four gets to pick these teams at the bottom of the top 25 or something, where there's a grouping, the kind of World Cup, where if you're the top four, you may play a top 20, like, you get my point, like, you kind of go down the mm-hmm. pecking order, you're not choosing to pick a crappy team, but you have a handful of teams that are kind of in your range, but not really, like, within a 30 deviation, like, maybe, okay, you draw from that, okay, 
Alabama, you're playing Louisiana because they're a top 20 team, you're number one. Notre Dame's playing Buffalo because that's the way it drew out two top 25 teams playing. Like, that could provide some interest. It could provide a chance for actual head-to-head comparison out of conference to cross-compare teams. You'd be able to uh, make a huge leap in the rankings. Like, oh, look at this year. Buffalo's in the MAC. The MAC's not great, but Buffalo is crushing everybody. Well, they get a shot against this team. If you're number, heck, if you're Oklahoma State number 20, you play number six, Texas A&M, you have three losses? Okay, cool. But you beat Texas A&M, you're for real. Maybe you'll go to the Cotton Bowl because you jump up being a good Texas A&M team. That mm-hmm. would be an option to do. There would be like a challenge, which would be hard to do between big league, but do, a, do an American crossover challenge possibly. Like you're telling me they don't want to play good games? Like Mike Resco would be up for that to play. Your number one team at the midway point. Don't predetermine like basketball, which has been a mess for that MVC challenge. But don't do it end of year. Do it mid-year. Like, okay, we have this weekend open. All right, you have Cincinnati, number one in the conference right now. They're the highest ranked team. San Jose State, you're playing each other. Boise State's playing Tulsa. Colorado State's playing Navy. Tulane's playing um, Hawaii. Like, you know what that would be like? That would be like kind of a, like a like an interesting spin on what the SEC always does before its rivalry weekend. You mean SoCon Week? Yeah. <laughs> just do, just do SoCon Week, but with like with each other. Yeah, it's like there's I don't know, but. Is, do you think the ultimate way to solve this is to remove most most of the human bias and have a conference champion get in with uh, your ideal playoff is twelve teams, right? Yeah. So what would that include? All conference champions? You could either do 10, 10 conference championships to quote unquote wild cards. Dude, that'd really make it tight. <laughs> you could do it. you could do six conference championships, you know, five from the power five, highest rated G five, mm-hmm. and then take your pick from what would I would assume would probably be like teams seven through like thirteen or fourteen. Mm-hmm. However, however you want to do it, it's going to be a step in the right direction from what we have now, where it's just a handful of teams doing the same thing over and over again. And for a consumer like me, I don't care about Alabama or Notre Dame or Ohio State or Clemson. They aren't interesting at this point. No, it's the but same the fact that they, over and over. But the fact that they monopolize the top has an effect on everything else, which I do care about. Yeah, because, um, yeah, like, it's like I mentioned, like, in the basketball thing. Like, I don't watch the Tyler Gamal that often, but it was cool to see George Mason make the big run. It was cool to see yeah. Butler go back, would they go back-to-back title games, I believe, and Gordon Hayward was a, a very good look just over half court that rimmed out against Duke, I think it was, to almost win the national title. Those are cool stories, which we would get if we had bigger playoff expansion, more inclusion. And this is a thing, oh, let's make it fair for everybody. It's only fair for, like, eight teams. Well, and it would have the effect of eliminating that whole excuse that you see about the yo. Oh, well, they didn't get up for this game against X. Yeah, Utah, Alabama, because it doesn't matter. Yeah, if you well, no, I'm just saying, like you know, like with what was it a couple of years ago with UCF and Auburn or something like that. Yeah, the or Florida, whatever it was. Yeah, but like still, you're already seeing about uh, you know Cincinnati and Georgia. Like if you put that game and you made it a playoff game, and the winner gets like, I don't know, Clemson or something like that. Yeah. Then all of a sudden you can bet that those teams, teams are going to care. There's that. And also like, it makes the season big more like, it and also make us more interesting in being like, I know you don't care about certain teams. It's either some, I don't care about either. It's like, we'll see how much playoff I watch or the power five. Isn't interesting because the same things happen all the time. Yeah. Like had it been like, like Notre Texas a and being close, it's fairly more interesting than normal. Like that is a little bit of rumble, like seeing not Iowa state, but like seeing other teams that are up there, but it's, like, I get it, they're good. That's fine. They can win the whole thing. But if you expand it a bit, you provide more interest, more money, more people to watch, more TV, more ticket sales, sell more parking spaces, more merchandise. If you were to expand it to include 16 teams, because I honestly, Alabama's going to crush whoever they play. I think FBI is in like an 
eighty percent chance. They already they already opened as a twenty and a half point favorite on Notre Dame, which is the largest (laughs) line in college football playoff history. But continue. But my point being, if you were to expand, I'm not saying they wouldn't win it all. Even if they would expand the playoff, they still probably would. But you're telling me if we were to get Cincy, Texas A&M round one game, say just just for example, not the actual rings, eight versus nine, and it's at Kyle Field. You tell me that's not a good game to watch. You're telling me, let's see, they think UNC is pretty good. Is UNC or the 13? They get to play. Um, let's say they play Notre Dame. That could be that could be a more interesting game. It gets more people involved in wanting to watch your sports. The incl- inclusivity makes it boring. And you're right. When it's the same two, like Alabama, Clemson, they're great teams. They might be. It's maybe, the same six teams over and over again. Yeah. Essentially, like the end result of watching these games usually pretty good. But I want to see somebody different. Like if one of those teams is always in there, but. It's kind of a gripe, like, well, the dynasties, whatever, Patriots, blah, 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 blah. But I would, it's like, it's not that. NFL is different than college like, by a lot, for a lot of different reasons, for how you recruit talent, keep talent, retain talent, and all that, pay coaches and players nothing. But would you be more, let's just say the system the same. Like, if it was a, say there's 20 teams that were in the mix, not because they, let's just say there's more parity, would that make you more interested? Like, say, if, if North Carolina would make the playoff, would you be more interested this year if they were that good? North Carolina? I'm just saying, yeah, just a random team that's not always there. No, I mean, yeah, I guess. That's my point. Like, different teams involved makes it more interesting, right? Like, yeah. Georgia or Georgia Tech or, heck, if Miami was good early in the year, that would make me more interested. So, you see my point there. Your interest may not be a ton more because it's Miami or Indiana or Cal or Arizona State, but it would be more interesting. Like, oh, there's all these different teams that have a chance to win or if teams are winning. That's where I think the expanded things would come from. But there's nothing we can do about it, but... You've heard a million. You can read a million things people have written about. You can hear us gripe about it. Twitter, we talk about it. But I'm gonna st- I'm gonna stick with my Arizona Bowl and my New Mexico Bowl this year. That's it. And the other bowl, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and my famous Idaho Potato Bowl. And I'm I'm, I'm gonna call. I'm good. I'm, I might be the same. I might watch six and M's. I like the Aggies there, but uh, they're gonna crush North Carolina to a pulp by 50 points. I think maybe I, I don't guess know. We'll see. I don't know. I think we're done. So it's it's just a mess. Like. Just, just love your team and watch your team, right? Is that all we can tell you? They should have put San Jose State in the playoff. Oh, there we go. Oh, <laughs> hold on. Can they win the College Matrix national title? Uh, they are, I believe, number six right now. Uh, it, 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 it is a long shot because of the teams that are ahead of them. Okay, we'll leave it at that. We'll discuss this at another time. We'll be back yeah. later. MWR.com. Check our, check our feed. Check our podcast, which you're listening to. Subscribe, rate, download, all that fun stuff. And we'll be back next time to talk some bowl games.